It's Char Nolan. How is everyone today? Welcome to... Okay. Hi, everyone. This is Char Nolan. Welcome to my kitchen and welcome to today's live event. Uh, I always look forward to these. And one of the things that I find really helpful is that when I read everyone's assessments, sometimes you'll post a question that I'll answer. Um, and then I'll think to myself, oh, I better write this down because this might be something really good to discuss during our live event. So the first thing I wanted to talk about uh, was uh, gluten-free pasta because now there are so many of them on the market. And in some cases, you almost have to be a detective to find out if they are in fact gluten-free because nowadays many of the pasta brands are not putting gluten-free as blatantly as they have in the past. And one of the reasons for this is that the manufacturers want to um, get a broader, broader customer range so that everybody will love chickpea pasta without thinking that, oh, it's gluten-free or somebody has celiac or I'm gluten intolerant or for whatever the reason might be. And when you turn the box over, it has vegan and it lists all of its qualifications, which include gluten-free. And this is a very interesting brand because it was founded by two brothers. One of them <clears throat> had uh, a gluten intolerance and they were backed by a very, very famous chef who helped them early on in their career. And now you can, you can find these at Walmart if you want to believe it or not. And this is where I actually got that. So just a note on gluten-free pasta. Also in that unit, um, which is in Plant Pro, um, it's a very good unit because cooking gluten-free pasta is a little different than cooking your traditional semolina pasta that maybe you've been cooking for a long time. And the other thing I wanted to show you was this pasta that is made from palm hearts and it's becoming very very popular and they have a brand at trader joe's which is very very good this happens to again be from walmart uh, it doesn't have the same cooking principles as the dry pasta does so if you are doing the assignment i recommend a dry pasta or using um, zucchini pasta where you have to make your own zoodles either with a spiralizer or you can use a mandolin and then slice them into strips yourself. Um, this is very good. It's very low in calories, which for some people is an interest. And if you put the right pasta sauce on it, it does have a really lovely taste to it. The other thing I wanted to talk about was tofu and um, because I live in Philadelphia, it's rumored that Benjamin Franklin had something to do with bringing this Chinese soy cheese to America. There are all kinds of different stories. Um, but one of the things I wanted to, I was having a conversation with Chef Eric the other day about shrinkflation and how shrinkflation has come to the tofu package. So this is uh, a traditional this is a nice organic silken tofu sometimes silken especially if you're buying the mori new brand comes in that little brick box which is 12 ounces and if you're making the creamy tofu chocolate pie that requires 18 ounces so you have to buy two of those little bricks but here this one is 16 ounces so you would still need an extra two ounces to get the quantity that you need for that pie and <clears throat> this is nasoya, which is extra firm. Uh, I'm an extra firm person. And if I can find extra, extra firm, I fill up my cart. This one is 14 ounces. And there is another brand at Walmart that is 12 ounces. So you really have to start reading the labels of the tofu packages because it can have an impact on how your end result comes with your soy tofu assignment. And last but not least, I happen to really, really love these. It's a solid brick. There's no liquid in it. It's very easy to drain. In fact, there's very little drainage. When you open these up, sometimes there's about three ounces of fluid in them. So you're not getting a solid um, weight of the tofu. So just kind of like be a little aware when you're out shopping these days looking for um, uh, tofu and uh, I love this organic tofu it's super firm and you don't have to drain it as long it makes very good soy croutons by the way in case you are 
you're wondering uh, about those kinds of things. So today we're going to start off with a question that a lot of students ask in their assignments, and that has to do with finding the right stainless steel pan. And while a lot of us enjoy shopping from the leisure of our own living room or wherever we happen to be with our computer, shopping for something like a knife and a stainless steel pan is really something that is best served when you do it in public. Uh, going to a department store, going to a kitchen store, heading to Williams-Sonoma, uh, being able to ask questions to a knowledgeable staff member is really very important. And um, <clears throat> we're going to start off with um, this question from Linda Kay about her stainless steel pan. And so my recommendations are that they are heavy. That's one of the downsides of using stainless steel. They are a heavy pan, but they're a healthier pan for you to use. Uh, staying away from aluminum is important. If you read some of Dr. Barnard's work on uh, why we should not use aluminum, uh, that reinforces the benefit of using a stainless steel pan. I also find that using a stainless steel pan uh, lets you regulate the heat of whatever it is that you're making. It works perfectly for the no oil saute. So back to this pan, this pan is not gigantic. And I weighed it and it weighed 14 ounces. So it's pretty easy to pick up with one hand. And if you are doing an assignment, but a heavy pan is something that you don't enjoy using, I would get a smaller pan and divide your the quantity of your food in half and do two rounds of the no oil saute. And then at the end, bring them together. You wouldn't want to crowd the base of this pan together because when mushrooms are covered, uh, when they cover one another and they're not exposed to direct heat, rather than saute, they will steam. Remember that mushrooms are about 98% water. So my suggestion is get to a store, try them out, ask questions, and uh, something small like this uh, works perfectly. And that would be my recommendation. I can't recommend any brands because uh, these days, but I did mention the last time that I have a... Um, 42-year-old set of Farberware stainless steel pots that my mother gave to me as a wedding present, and they are still going strong, just like my marriage. Um, <clears throat> so somebody here just said, uh, thanks for mentioning tofu. Um, she's This person is having trouble finding tofu that's firm enough, and she can't find a, a, a tofu that won't break and crumble. So there's a secret. It's a total secret. Don't tell anyone I told you. But I would take this, open it up, drain all the water, and then I wrap it in a towel, into a kitchen towel. And then I put it in a colander, put a bowl underneath, and then I put it in the fridge for a couple of hours so that more moisture can come out of it. Because I'm somebody who happens to love really dry tofu. And you know, it's kind of funny because when I read your uh, roasted tofu assignments and many people will share that, oh my gosh, this is the first time that I've ever really loved a tofu recipe. This is so good. I didn't eat tofu until I made that Ruby recipe of tofu more than eight years ago when I was a student in the program. So if you like a nice dry tofu, take some of the moisture out. You can get a tofu press. Um, I think I've mentioned before that my uh, Italian grandmother uh, would uh, take, um, when she made eggplant, and I apply the same principle to tofu, is she would slice it, and then she would put an iron on it and pots and pans, and it would be this, you know, it looked like uh, Fibber McGee in Molly's closet, and um, then her eggplant would just come out beautifully. So I think draining it is the key, at least that's what I recommend and what works for me. Um, Paul, that was a great question, by the way. Um, I'm going to, we had a question come in that was very interesting to me. It's from Pamela J. And she had a few questions about frying an egg. So I turned to my colleague, the esteemed Dan Merrick, uh, and he is going to share some of his own knowledge about cooking eggs. So take it away, Dan. This question's from Pamela. When I fry an egg and it needs to be sunny side up, 
I put a lid over it to cook the egg whites and the top of the egg so it's not so runny. When I do that, it burns the butter and I end up starting over again. I'm going through eggs fast. So this is actually a pretty common question. Uh, we designed a class for Jacques Pepin last year, um, and he actually has a wonderful answer for it. So I'm gonna let him answer. There is nothing as simple and as good as just a fried egg. There is a way of doing it. I mean, my way of doing it, not everyone's way, but mine. So uh, a tablespoon of butter in there, two eggs. Always break the egg on something flat like this up to open your egg. Otherwise, when you do it on something uh, pointed like this, it push the shell inside, often break the yolk and introduce bacteria. So something flat this way. Okay. So the idea here is to do it at relatively low temperature, which is not exactly what you do in a cafeteria, because cooking it at low temperature will give you an egg with very tender egg white. And that was the idea when I was a kid, you were taught how to do it, so it was very tender, the white, no crustiness around, and cooking slowly this way. So it's very tender. So just melt the butter, and a couple of eggs will go in there. A dash of salt on top of it. Rest of the seasoning will come later. And here, now I'm going to reduce the heat to very low. And I want to cover it. I want to glaze the top of the egg. What we call a miroir, a mirror, you know, is glass on top. Sometimes to help a little bit on that, what I do, I put like a teaspoon of water around. Not much, but that, with the lid on, that creates a steam, a little bit of steam, and it will glaze the top. And that will take about two minutes. It's about ready, of course. I like my eggs, you know, runny in the center. Of course, you can leave them longer if you don't want to have them ready. But as you can see here, the whole top is glazed. Now, and it's cooked very gently. Whoop. This way. And that will go onto my plate. This way. Uh, I like to put cracked paper on top here. Again, question of taste, maybe a few chives too. And here is the way I like my egg. So you can see here that that thing is still very runny. This is thick, but that egg white here is going to be very, very tender and soft. And the center here will be this way, just the way I like it. It's my way of doing it. Try that one. Happy cooking. Now, as you saw from that video clip, one of the important things is making sure that your pan is starting at a medium low heat so you don't overcook that butter and you don't overcook the egg. Now, the water is actually key to this. So actually, once you get the egg in there, pour a tablespoon of water on the ed edge and then put the lid on the top. That way you'll really get that glassy sheen that Jacques was talking about. It'll help to cook the egg. Now, if you want a crispier outside, once you actually get that sheen on the top, you can turn the heat up a little bit and you'll get a crispy edge to the outer rim of that egg. Hey, Dan, thanks so much. Dan and I get to see one another uh, either at a meeting or when we're online together, but uh, I was happy that he could uh, jump in and answer that question. We have a few more. Before we go into the other questions, I did want to share one thing with you because a lot of people will ask me during an assignment, oh, what's your favorite cookbook? And that's like asking me what's your, you know, what's your favorite child or, or whatever. This book is the accompanying cookbook to Body on Fire by Dr. Monica Agarwal and Dr. Joy T. Rao. And they have been friends for many, many years. Some of you may know Dr. Rao uh, if you live in the Baltimore area. And Dr. Agarwal uh, lives in Florida. And she was one of the pioneering physicians who set up a whole food plant-based diet in her hospital in the University of Florida. She is at Jacksonville. Um, this cookbook is absolutely fabulous. 
Uh, it's got some great recipes. The best recipe for a tofu Caesar dressing that I've ever had and a wonderful lentil stew that I really like. And I've known uh, Dr. Agarwal for many, many years. And I'm proud to say that she's also a Ruby graduate. We have many, many physicians who come into the program who want to understand not just nutrition, but cooking better so they can relate better to their patients. So uh, I'm going to give uh, five stethoscopes to this wonderful cookbook created by two really delightful physicians. And if you have the chance to read their um, the accompanying book to this, I would recommend reading Body on Fire, Dr. Agarwal had rheumatoid arthritis, had crippling rheumatoid arthritis, and was able to figure out one day at a time that a plant-based diet would totally reverse and put her into remission with her disease. So she's a wonderful person. She's a mom of three. She's a dear friend. But I love the cookbook, even if I didn't know her. So thanks for letting me share that little uh, tidbit about um, Dr. Agarwal. I really love her and her book. So we have uh, quite a few questions about frozen vegetables. And I have to say, I am a big fan of frozen vegetables uh, during Nutrition Month. Uh, I think that we featured uh, some information on social media about Clarence Birdseye and how he invented this way of taking farm fresh vegetables and freezing them. So a couple of things to take in mind about frozen vegetables. Uh, one thing to consider is um, you have to look at the brand. Oftentimes, uh, a generic or store brand, rather than saying florets, it will say cuts, and you'll end up getting just the broccoli um, stem, you know, diced into a beautiful dice that doesn't have quite the flavor as the florets do. Um, I'm happen I happen to be very fond of this brand called Stahlbush. Um, while they want you to believe that this is a brown paper bag, it is lined with plastic, just like the other you know, popular brands, generic brands that also come in um, plastic bags. I would also advise you to look at the country of origin of the vegetables. For example, if you were eating 365 Brussels sprouts, I love Brussels sprouts, uh, they're actually from Belgium. Uh, there are other brands of vegetables that are coming from China. So uh, I like this company because things are locally produced in Oregon. Uh, they, they know the, the growers of it. The price point of it is a little bit more expensive, uh, but quick and easy, this works really well. Remember that if you go back to your uh, boiling uh, broccoli, and if you do a either a blanche or a parboil, you can flash freeze them and then put them into bags and have your own ready-made frozen vegetables, which I used to do a long time ago. But you know, uh, Clarence Birdseye and Stallbush and other companies have made it very easy. So my top three are these. No big surprise: cauliflower, broccoli, and Brussels sprouts. Um, I have these uh, diced sweet potatoes on hand in case I want to make a quick soup. Because if you have some stock that you have made, like this one here that you're seeing from some vegetable scraps that I had a few weeks ago, uh, if you have some stock and you've got a, mire, uh, a mirepoix of your aromatic vegetables, you can make a quick soup in no time, but maybe you don't have the time to dice a sweet potato and wait for it to cook. I also like to, whenever I'm working with frozen vegetables to make them more nutrient dense, I like to add um, either shredded mushrooms, which you just use uh, a square a box, a box grater and you grate them away and they come out looking like little pieces of Parmesan cheese, if I can say that word. So, um, my three favorite vegetables, I love to make them into a soup. I enjoy just eating them plain steamed. Um, I enjoy nutritional yeast, um, but not too much nutritional yeast because it is really packed with vitamin B12. Um, but I think soups, I think salads, you know, um, if I ran over to my refrigerator right now, you would find a bag of um, 
defrosted uh, bird's eye corn because I always keep a bag of frozen vegetables in the refrigerator in case I want to make something quick. So I have an idea that tonight I'm going to make a Texas caviar and I don't have to worry about waiting for anything to thaw. So there's just another uh, quick tip and uh, Radek, I hope that those are helpful to you. And what is the best way to prepare them? Well, you know, most companies give really, really good directions for how you should cook your vegetables. But this is my steadfast go-to. These are ceramic dishes that come with this kind of a vacuum top, has a little clock on it, and I can open it up to let the steam out. And this is, if I'm gonna put them in the microwave, this is what I will use. So I try to stay away from using plastic uh, film toppings, you know, like uh, saran wrap or other things like that. So uh, this doesn't make me feel quite as guilty. It's a ceramic dish. Uh, you can find these at Marshalls, at Home Goods, at TJ Maxx. I'm sure you can find them online. I have them in multiple sizes. I use them for everything. And then the nice thing is, if you do have leftovers, you don't have to worry about putting them into another container. They just slip right into the fridge and they're totally good to go. Those, these are great questions about um, frozen uh, vegetables. So I am uh, a frozen vegetable fan. And uh, the one other thing about them is that do make certain that they haven't added some kind of creamy invisible sauce or that there is no added sodium in them. I find the generic brands add sodium to them so that the weight of the vegetables is a little higher than the actual content. So um, just a little frozen vegetable uh, 101. <clears throat> this next question is from Paul D. Hi, Paul. Uh, this is related to soaking versus boiling. Uh, should I boil things like nuts or beans if I am pressed for time and can't soak overnight and for how long? Well, I am um, I'm the kind of person who uh, wishes that the world was run by a microwave because I like to get things done. So what I would do is open up that bag of beans. I would sort them out first to make sure that there aren't any pebbles or anything in them because um, uh, that can happen. And then I would cover them with uh, hot water. And I might even just put, I have, I have bigger ones of these. I would cover them with water to the very top. And then I would put it in the microwave for about 10 minutes. And I think that will kind of give you the texture that you would like. That's what I do. It works for me. Um, I say um, for you, Chris, that, um, I'm sorry, Paul, that um, batch cooking is going to be your best friend because if you batch cook, you'll never be in a hurry and you'll always have what you want. But that's a very good question. Beans, beans will take 10 days to cook if you don't soak them. At least that's my, my experience. So thank you. Uh, overnight is good. Oh, you can't soak overnight. Well, overnight is the ideal, but 15 minutes in the microwave. Uh, then rinse them when you take them out of the microwave and then get ready to make your soup or your casserole or whatever it is that you're going to make. So um, <clears throat> Pamela J has another question that I'm going to direct straight to Dan, who uh, has become the uh, egg expert in my eyes. Uh, and so let's take it away, Dan, and help Pamela figure out how she can peel hard boiled eggs. So here's another one from Pamela. Hi, I'm having a hard time with peeling my hard boiled eggs. No matter what I try, uh, they sometimes break and I'm peeling away the whole layer off so I'm left with an egg that looks awful, help. So again, I'm gonna to refer to Jacques on this one because he's really the expert with eggs. Um, and what he actually says is you want to bring your water up to a boil and then you wanna put your eggs inside of it. Now, if you're looking for a softer center, you want to boil it for about seven minutes. If you're looking for a harder center, much like we use in America for the deviled eggs, it won't be about 10 minutes. Now, after doing that, you're going to remove the egg and put it into an ice bath. Now, one trick that Jacques does that you don't see a lot of people do is he'll actually take a push pin and push the pin onto the end, end of the egg that's like kind of comes to the narrower part, push the pin into the egg to create a small hole. So any air that's on the inside will come out and it'll actually make the skin of the egg on the inside contract a little better so it won't hold in as much. I've known a lot of people that have used this, but I've also not used it as much myself. 
but it is a wonderful trick that Jacques actually shows to be able to make sure that it doesn't stick. Now, after cooking your eggs, no matter how what technique you're actually going to use, um, just dump your eggs into a, an ice bath, um, very gently, of course, but put your eggs into the ice bath, let them sit to cool down, and then afterward, you'll be able to peel them. Jacques actually says it's best to peel eggs under water. So under cold water in the tap, you can just put it right under and be able to peel those. You can just crack it a little bit in your eggs and this, the skin should and the peel should come right off of the outside. Now there are other some there now there are some other home ideas that I've learned over the years. My grandmother actually used to put vinegar, just a, about a tablespoon of vinegar into the boiling water. And what that actually does is it starts to break down some of the shell on the inside um, as you're cooking it. So it makes it a little easier to peel as well. But either way, you do want to make sure that you're cooling down the eggs directly after cooking in an ice bath to be able to make sure that that shell is coming off as easy as possible. I hope that helps, Pamela. And we're back, Dan to the rescue. Uh, thanks, Dan, really appreciate your uh, input very, very much. Um, <clears throat> so we have a question that we get asked all the time and I'm going to share it with you. It's from Donna H. She wants to know about honey as a sweetener as she has not seen it mentioned as a substitute or sweetener substitute rather um, in the Forks Over Knives course. So it's a very easy answer, and that is because um, it is an animal product. It comes from bees, and if you are living a vegan plant-based life, you will not use honey. Now, I know a lot of ethical vegans, we'll call them, who would never, ever think of using honey, and then I know some people who do use honey because it's locally sourced. It has led a, a lot of... Um, medicinal properties. Uh, if you have allergies, using locally sourced honey is one of the best things. And this is where I would encourage anyone that if you are using honey to always check its source, because lots of times you'll see a, um, a honey that's sourced in Brazil, Ecuador, and Florida. And so um, the, the local pollen that are in the flowers in your neighborhood will help with your allergies and other things. I have lived in foreign countries where honey is used medicinally, topically for burns and wounds and things like that. But that's the reason why honey is not mentioned. Generally in our assignments, you'll see maple syrup, you'll see agave, which is sourced from cactus, or you'll see date syrup, which is also referred to as Ceylon. And um, this is, um, there's a company called Date Lady, and she has a plethora of really great items, including her date syrup. But this is a sweet chili sauce that's got chili in it, apple cider vinegar, and uh, date syrup. So it's really good to use on uh, Mexican dishes or any kind of Latin dish, or sometimes I'll use it instead of using a balsamic glaze on some dishes, I'll use this and it just has a little kick of heat to it. Uh, and that works out really well. The other part about it is that um, <clears throat> maple syrup and um, date syrup, for example, do have uh, a lot of nutrients in them. Uh, honey does too, but I think that um, the uh, date syrup and maple syrup are a little bit more nutrient dense. So Donna, um, try the date syrup. Uh, there is a company in uh, California called Rancho Meladuco, and it's a woman owned date farm. And the woman who owns it is uh, named Joan Smith. And she's a busy mother of three and she now has her own date farm. And uh, I have been ordering my dates from her for years. I've made date paste from her dates. I make date syrup from her dates. But uh, you can always go to a place like Date Lady. Uh, you can get it online anywhere. And um, many, many uh, grocery stores like Whole Foods uh, do sell the Date Lady products. Also date sugar and maple sugar, which are also both very good. Um, if I want to do bake, uh, I will use maple or date sugar so that the texture of the batter remains the same as it would if it were being made with a regular granulated sugar. So what would be my 
quick go-to recipe with frozen vegetables. Easy peasy. You throw them in a pan. Maybe I've sauteed, I've dry sauteed some onion, those vegetables. I'll add some stock. And um, I like to add oatmeal as a thickener so that it, it doesn't come out like a bowl of oatmeal, but it comes out as a thick soup. And then I'll take about a cup of that and I'll puree it so that it looks like a creamy soup. And only I know that it doesn't have cream in it and lots of other stuff. Um, you know, find a, um, a spice profile that you like. If you enjoy Indian cooking, put some Indian spices together. If you enjoy Italian cooking, create a, a, a spice box for that. If you like Mexican cooking, there's a spice box for that. French cooking and so forth and so on. So that you have kind of like a quick go-to for whatever spices that you want to use. And then I always like to add... Um, if I'm just having plain vegetables, to serve them over some brown rice or some quinoa, and then maybe sprinkle some of this on it or nutritional yeast, uh, staying away, of course, from uh, oil and other things like that. So I say become best friends with the frozen food department of your store where the vegetables are only, though. So um, uh, you're welcome. Uh, <clears throat> erotic again another very good question so um this is from donna and she's asking about oils and um specifically about hemp oil so we'll go back for a second and say that i am a person who does not use oil i don't use olive oil but i eat olives i don't use avocado oil but i eat avocados and i don't use hemp oil but i use hemp seed this happens to be the trilogy it's got flax chia and hemp in it and uh, I sprinkle this on food for flavor I add it to add uh, a thicken you know as a thickening agent for something that I might be working with so being able to answer your question on hemp isn't something that I would be totally good at but remember that hemp seed itself is 30 percent fat and uh, it has a lot of healthy fatty acids in it so it's like some of the physicians, like Dr. Esselstyn, for example, will say, eat the entire piece of food, not the extracted oil, because there are no nutrients in the extracted oils. So um, that's my answer to the question. Um, this is a, a wonderful product. I love the fact that the three of them are together and I don't have to have like 97 jars in my refrigerator. So Donna, if you want more of an answer to that, um, Maybe we can, uh, I can send you some information, but uh, that's uh, it for now. So thank you for the question, though. It was a really good one. Uh, this is uh, from Donna H. again. And again, today it's the Dan and Char show because uh, I'm turning to Dan to answer this question about the nutrition of marijuana edibles. Take it away, Dan. All right, this question is from Donna. Hello, I'm just curious if you know anything about the nutrition of marijuana edibles. Just wondering. So that's actually kind of an open-ended question. Uh, marijuana edibles come in a lot of different forms. Most people are probably more familiar with things like gummies or brownies or different cookies that you can buy at different dispensaries across the United States where it's legal. Now, those all have different kinds of nutrition to them. Um, what's becoming more popular is actually cooking with um, marijuana in full-blown meals. So you can actually get like a five-course meal um, at a restaurant that might have some sort of edible in it. They do it in in micro doses, so you don't get a whole lot of the uh, marijuana in it. But when it comes down to nutrition, it really depends on what you're doing. So if you have, uh, you know, one brownie versus another, the nutrition facts can be completely different. Um, in one brownie, somebody might use something like uh, a black bean in it, where another one would be just strictly flour. So the nutrition facts on that are going to be very different on those. When it comes to the nutrition on marijuana edibles, you might want to do a bit of a deeper dive um, and really seeing where that's sourced from. Usually if it's sourced from a quality source, they might have nutrition facts on something like the package even of something like a brownie. Um, for restaurants, they might have nutrition facts as well to be able to show how much of something is in there, what ingredients they're using. So um, looking at nutrition facts on marijuana edibles can be 
a huge variety of different things. So it's a little hard to answer that question. Um, but if you're looking for something in gummies or brownies, you're not going to get a whole lot of nutrition out of it. Um, but really, if you're looking for something in an entire meal, try to keep it in that whole food plant-based uh, to get the optimal nutrition out of it. I hope that helps. Louise, you have asked the best question, but first I want to thank Dan for, again, stepping in and answering the question about the nutrition of the marijuana edibles. I think it's more important of what your real food is like, and that nutrition does certainly count a lot. Um, this is from Louise C. again, and she has a question. Uh, this is a great question because a lot of it has to do with marketing. Uh, what's the difference between a stock and a, um, a broth? So uh, <clears throat> in terms of vegetables, there's only, there's just vegetable, you can call it vegetable stock or vegetable broth. Um, some uh, manufacturers will call plant-based um, stock stock because it's a little bit thicker. Stocks are generally made from bones where there's a lot of collagen. So that's why it's called stock. And broth is usually made from um, whatever a piece of meat. So go to the vegetable realm and they're just vegetables. Some companies will add agar to make it a little bit thicker. Um, but I, in the vegetable world, a plant and a stock a stock and a, and a broth rather are essentially the same thing. I say this, save all your vegetable scraps, make your own. And again, I have to turn to this beautiful color of this um, broth stock, leftover vegetables I made. Um, and I keep it in the fridge and pour it if I want to make a quick soup or whatever. So that's essentially the difference. Again, read the labels. My caution about... Um, ready-made uh, stock or broth is that some of them have so much sodium in them. Some of them have 756 milligrams of sodium in a cup of stock. And if the World Health Organization is telling you that we should not be eating more than 1,500 milligrams of salt a day, that one cup is 50% of your salt intake. And when I make stock, I never put any salt in it. I just let the vegetables cook down on their own. And I also include um, things like onion skins and all of the skins. I really, uh, really peel vegetables, but I always save the onion skins because it really helps to create a very earthy flavor. So uh, Toki has another good question, and this is what to do with leftover pulp. I'm guessing that you're making your own almond milk, which is great. And um, what I like to do with my leftover almond pulp is to get a baking sheet, line up with parchment paper, put the pulp on it, spread it out, and then bake it until it becomes a light, light, light golden brown. And I save it to put in salads. I save it as a garnish. Um, there are just many things that you can do with it. If you wanted to have um, a jelly sandwich, you could sprinkle some of that almond, that roasted almond dust, I like to call it. And it would certainly add some flavor to your dish. Um, I know some people um, don't have the time or the energy or whatever to um, want to go through all of that and they will use it to compost or they will use it as fertilizer on their plants so whichever road you decide to choose i think will be a great one but congratulations on making your own almond milk i think that that is uh, really a very very good one so it's funny here we are today talking about tofu and ways to make it and i'm going to say this the ruby recipe for roasted tofu is the best recipe in the world and the marinade that they use that has maple syrup and garlic and uh, liquid smoke if you don't have liquid smoke remember that you can use smoked paprika to get that smoky flavor however there are some nights where I just don't want to have something that has a, a barbecue -y flavor to it so what I will do is I will marinate the tofu in some marinara sauce and I will add oregano and garlic and other things so that if I'm having a pasta dish, 
my tofu accompanies that just beautifully. Um, I like to air fry it a lot. Um, sometimes I will take those Trader Joe, um, the everything bagel seasoning and just roll the uh, cubes of uh, tofu in that and then air fry them. And they come out like really nice croutons or you can put them into a salad. So I think to answer the question uh, for marinating is that whatever you feel like having, if you have a salad dressing that you like, marinate it in that salad dressing. Um, if you wanted to add something sweet and hot, put some of this in it. So I think that it all depends upon what you like, but I think that an out of the gate recipe is the one from um, from Ruby because that recipe is fail proof. And I always love reading the assignments because at the end somebody will say, oh my goodness, I didn't think I was going to love tofu. This is the best thing I've ever made in this program. So um, the marinade is up to you, salad dressing, pasta sauce, whatever you want to make it. I, th I think that you'll have fun putting some flavors together. Um, so Deep G, hello, how are you today? Uh, he uses dates a lot. Um, that's good. Uh, is monk fruit a good sweetener? So I have a couple of comments about uh, monk fruit. So this is one, this is monk fruit here. It's almost granulated. It has the texture of instant coffee. Uh, if you're going to buy true monk fruit, you've got to go, I'll go to H Mart because this one is mixed with erythritol and I don't really want to have erythritol in my system. So I say, uh, either go to Chinatown or H Mart or go to a place like Amazon and examine the different monk fruit availabilities that they are. Um, you know, dates are so deliciously sweet. They taste like candy. They've got potassium in them. They've got fiber in them. They're good for you, but uh, sometimes it can be too much of a good thing. Um, I have a sweet tooth, so I have to remind myself that uh, dates are loaded with sugar and that you don't need more than one or two. And um, we, we train ourselves to um, sort of unravel old tasting patterns. Uh, it takes 21 days to change a habit. Um, but try the monk fruit. Make sure it doesn't have erythritol in it. Um, I think the, I, I won't say the brand, but if you go to the conventional grocery store, it's in a red bag, but it does have erythritol in it. The one I get at H Mart is pure monk fruit. It doesn't have as sweet a taste. It's a little bit more subtle, but it works. So um, I hope that um, that, that um, helps you. That's a very good question because I think, um, let me just get on a soapbox for one minute. Oftentimes I'll hear people say, and it's sugar free. And then I'll look at the recipe and it'll have a cup of maple syrup in it, or it'll have a cup of date syrup in it. And yes, it's refined sugar free, but remember that maple syrup, date syrup, et cetera, et cetera are all sources of sugar. So if sugar is something that is important for you to keep an eye on, be aware. But try that monk fruit. Let me know how it is. Um, this is a question from Paul. Uh, and he has uh, a question about sous vide. Can you use tofu to infuse more intense flavors? So Thinking at the top of my head, I'm wondering about the texture of the tofu. So I think that you would probably have to go with super firm because if you went with a firm regular tofu, it might fall apart uh, in the sous vide process, but I think it might uh, also help to give you the flavor. So I'm assigning the test to you that you must try some super firm tofu in your sous vide and get back to us and tell us what you thought. Very good question. Thank you very much, Paul. This is from Dolores A. And she wants to know if I've ever used hex clad pans and are they helpful when it comes to oil? I have never used uh, hex clad pans before. Um, I'm going to step back and say that I have been uh, living a whole food plant based no oil diet for almost 14 years. 
And when I look back to 14 years ago, to the way that things are today, um, there certainly are a lot more, many, many more products out on the market to help make life easier in the kitchen when you're cooking without oil. But I have learned over the years, certainly by trial and error and practice of learning how to stay with, uh, you know, a stainless steel pan to get what it is that I am looking for in the finished product. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I've spent a lot of time around uh, Jane and Ann Esselstyn, and I watched them like a hawk on a limb because what they are able to do in a kitchen without any oil and without any fancy pans, to me, has always been such a wonderful thing to learn. So um, make sure you're watching Jane and Ann's videos on her YouTube channel of uh, Jane Esselstyn because she regularly she talks about, you know, just using a plain old ordinary pan and um, getting done what it is that you have to get done. But uh, Dolores, uh, uh, I hope I answered your question, and uh, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Um, Simone wants to know what the organization tips are for prepping and freezing and storing ahead. Well, the first thing is designated time. You've got to, like, write out a block of time for yourself, and uh, that would include making a menu of, you know, what you want to have, what you want to have on store. Um, I have a, a, a sojirushi rice cooker, and uh, it's a small one. And then what I do is um, uh, I take the uh, I take cupcake containers, and then I pack them really hard with rice and put them in the freezer. And then when they're frozen, I pop them out and put them in a container, and have rice on hand. Or um, you know, making some baked potatoes that will last you a week. And remember that you're not just going to um, eat baked potatoes for the whole week. You're going to slice them. You're going to dice them. You're going to roast them. You're going to put them in your air fryer. You're going to do all kinds of crazy things with them. So block out some time, make a menu from that, your shopping list. And I have to say that, um, you know, for three years, we all lived in COVID and life was really easy. And now all of a sudden, somebody pushed the speed button uh, on my own life and I'm so busy that I have to now go back to pre-planning and being organized and um, having a sense of decorum in my kitchen so that uh, it just makes everything float together easily. And um, I also want to say, you know, you can pre-cook pasta and then put it into little nests, flash freeze them, and then use those also during the week. So, um, so that time is on your side. And I think that uh, Simone, we all want to have some time on our side. Um, this is from Peggy B. Oh, this is a great question. Thank you for asking. What are some of the dishes you prepare for the community groups where you volunteer? Uh, do participants help you cook or do you bring, oh, this is a great question. So, um, in February, I received a grant from uh, the Esselstyn Foundation to implement a four-week uh, cooking class for um, men and women who had um, comorbidities. And uh, Jane and Anne would Skype in with us and, you know, sort of be you know, a cheerleader. And uh, one day when I was teaching how to do the dry uh, uh, no saute, the no oil saute, uh, this lovely, lovely woman, young, young woman, we'll say, let's say that her name was uh, Queenie. And um, she did such a good job that afterwards I went up to her and I said, you know, Queenie, in the summertime, we cook at the farm and I would love for you to come and be our apprentice. So what we cook at the farm is what we pick in the field. So I know that next week, um, uh, Queenie is going to teach everyone how to do a no oil saute. And then we're going to have cabbage and kale that we're going to serve on um, a slab of whole wheat bread uh, that's going to have um, hummus on it. And then the sauteed vegetables with a little bit of this date sauce. And then they're going to get um, a, if you're familiar with the Engine 2 cookbook, uh, a big popular item uh, in one of my communities is um, uh, Mighty Muffins. So we'll have Mighty Muffins, and then we I make an iced tea 
without sugar and without stevia. And uh, when it's hot and you get a big glass of ice, people just enjoy drinking something. And then they're like, I can't believe that. Tomorrow I have a class and um, we're doing, um, I don't know if any of you saw it, but on the uh, Ruby page, there was a recipe for a tahini sauce with zucchini. And the tahini sauce was very easy. It was Bragg's and um, a couple of tablespoons of tahini and a couple of spices. I forget what they were. So we're going to have that. And then they're going to do an MYO, a make your own of a Dr. Seuss stacker, which is um, polenta, walnut sauce, tomato, and a sweet potato. And it has a drizzle of uh, balsamic glaze. Um, and I, I wanted to share with you, not to go off topic, but when I work in the communities where I work, I do all of my shopping at Walmart or at Aldi so that I don't appear as somebody that's making healthy eating difficult because I had to go to name a grocery store. So it makes life really easy. And in our, in one of my communities, there's a grocery store called a grocery store outlet. And uh, I take them on a tour uh, every semester so that we can review uh, about what's good, what's, what's healthy, shop the perimeter of the store. Um, I use a lot of grains and a lot of beans. And I'm finishing up a class right now that was called Shopping on a Shoestring. So we did, um, we made potato salad, but without mayonnaise, we used hummus as the mayo. Um, we made uh, a cousin of the Ruby Tunela salad but instead of using the creme cashew, we used hummus. And I always like to tell everybody that hummus is the new mayo. And um, it's just wonderful to see light, light bulbs go on. And one last thing about this, Peggy. Um, uh, one of the places where I teach with the Charlie cart, uh, and everybody should Google Charlie cart because if there's a Charlie cart near you, uh, anybody who's listening to this broadcast today should be working on a Charlie cart because it's so much fun. Anyway, um, <clears throat> one of the facilities that I work at, the first, it's called the health library. The first floor is the library. The second floor is a primary care clinic run by the Philadelphia Department of Health. And the third floor is a primary care clinic from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And I've been at this facility for six years. And my joy comes from someone coming to my class saying, my doctor told me I should come here because you don't cook with salt and I have hypertension. Or my doctor told me to come here because you don't cook with sugar and I have diabetes. So um, try to make it relatable, try to make it trendy in the best of ways, because I want people to feel important about what it is that they're making. And, you know, my other joy comes from uh, somebody will send me pictures about what they made for dinner or um, we have to meet people where they are, but it doesn't mean that we can't teach them how to eat beautiful salads uh, and how we can't show somebody five things to do with a lemon that you never thought you would do before. So um, those kinds of things. You got me on a soapbox there, Peggy. You got me on a soapbox. So um, I'm sorry if I've taken up too much time. Uh, Patrick uh, put in the tahini dressing and he put in the Charlie cart and uh, I call my Charlie cart, the Charlene cart. Um, I've been working directly with the Charlie cart for six years. Uh, they are out of Berkeley, California. And let me just share with you that the executive director, a wonderful woman named Carolyn Fetterman, she worked for Alice Water at Chez Panisse and she invented along with Alice, the edible schoolyard. And so from that experience came the Charlie cart and I have to tell you, the Charlie cart is like, it would be Ruby Nirvana because it has all clad pots. It's got a Vitamix. It has an induction stovetop. It has a little oven. It has a sink. It has knives for every occasion. Um, I mean, it's just a wonderful thing. So if you are the facilitator or the chef for that class, you just kind of show up with your food because everything is where it is and what you need. And I'm just so, uh, I feel so fortunate and blessed uh, to be a Charlie Cart um, instructor. So I hope that, you know, some of you will ask me, what am I gonna do when I finish Ruby? Um, things don't fall from the sky. 
if you if, if there's a usually trolley carts are at libraries um check your local library there are 478 trolley carts throughout the country so uh if you do some quick math there might be 10 in a state so city of philadelphia I'm fortunate it has three of them. So Patrick, thanks for that plug for the trolley cart because you know I love the trolley cart. Oh, this is a great question about leaks. There are so many different ways, but the, the moral of the story is that you want to get the sand out. When I cook leeks, I like to slice them down the center and then I squirt that high pressure shower on my uh, faucet here in the kitchen and get as much sand out as I can, but I've washed them three or four times. And I have to say that uh, my leek salads and uh, sauteed leek have been sand free. So I think that that um, works um, for me. Uh, so down the middle, wash heavily, do it three times. Uh, this is from Lily B. Uh, do you have any tips to organize recipes from cookbooks online, forks over knives, magazines, social media? She named every uh, social media email. How can you remember where and when I saw the recipe without printing it every time? I had a discussion with a colleague of mine the other day because she said, you never write anything down. And uh, I don't because I have a photographic memory, um, which still works, which is amazing to me. So my question my answer to this would be um you have to keep some kind of a notebook and maybe just write down um i liked the forks over knives strawberry coffee cake it was really good and then put april 2022 and that's when that happened it was a cover of uh the magazine i i don't have any really good um uh solutions to that uh, recipes that I work on and uh, keep, I keep them in a shoebox. I don't know why, but I do a lot of things in longhand. Uh, so I, I'm probably not the best person to ask, but maybe you could start a database in your computer um, by publication and then by publication and then categories of savory, sweet, dessert, salad, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I hope that helps, but Lily, that is a really good question because now there's so much information. Um, Lily also has a question about a good vegan air fryer cookbook. Um, if you are on Facebook or check out her book, her first name is Susan. Her last name is Voison, V-O-I-S-O-N. She has several good cookbooks about air frying and on Facebook um, she has a no oil um, Facebook page so I think you might find that helpful Paul's back with another good question and the bad part for you Paul is that I live about 20 minutes from the mushroom capital of the world, and I am frequently in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, where I am always experimenting with new and delicious uh, mushrooms. So I like, um, you know, I love a portobello. I mean, what, what can you say about a portobello? I like to take the gills out, I like to marinate it, and I like to barbecue it. Um, I enjoy... Uh, an oyster mushroom um, because they are really good to grate again on a box grater if you wanted to make a pulled uh, kind of barbecue dish they work beautifully um, you know I love cremony which are also called baby bellas uh, they have two different names uh, if you ever have the opportunity Paul to come to Pennsylvania I definitely say to go visit a mushroom farm um, fascinating and you know mushrooms are so good for you there's a mushroom company called Phillips mushroom company and uh, it is one of the few women-owned uh, mushroom companies uh, from the Phillips family who have been around since the 1800s um, just an interesting story because I recently did an article about um, mushrooms and uh, mushroom farms were originally founded by the Quakers who have a very industrious work ethic. 
uh, that's why Quaker Oats is called Quaker Oats. It's not Quaker, but they appreciated the work ethic of the uh, Quakers. Uh, so as time came to be, when immigrants from Italy started to come and work in the farms, um, the Quakers noticed the work ethic of the Italians who came and they gave them parcels of land to start their own mushroom companies. So when you drive through Chester County, Pennsylvania, there are many Italian owned uh, mushroom companies that are have roots to Quakerism and the development of farmland in Pennsylvania. But I like all kinds of mushrooms. I love shiitake. Always remember to take off that stem because it's very fibrous. And uh, it, to me, it has a little bitterness to it. So uh, just always remember that. So this is from Cynthia. Cynthia says, no question, just thank you. Oh, thank you, Shar and Dan. Dan's great. And for sharing the information and video regarding the eggs, that video was great. Even though I no longer eat eggs, um, I can pass the information on to others possibly. And that's the beauty of these live events. There's information that you can share with others. So Cynthia, thank you so much for saying that. That is very, very nice. And then Cynthia wants to know how you freeze your own broccoli. So go back to the broccoli assignment. You turn the broccoli on its head. You cut off the florets. And then you're going to have your pan of boiling water. You have a bowl of ice, a little water in it. And then you're going to cook it for about a minute. I'm going to stick with the, uh, with the uh, blanche on this. And then you stick it in the ice for about a minute. Take it out. I like to dry it so it doesn't get soggy. And then when, once it has cooled down, I'll put it on a cookie sheet, line them up, put it in the freezer. Once they're frozen, I take them out and then I put them in little bags or containers so that I have broccoli that all I have to do is zap it in the microwave or cook it for, you know, maybe three or four minutes, much less than having to prep the broccoli and then, you know, get it to that texture that you like. So that's that that that's what uh, batch cooking is all about. So that's another good question. You get two gold stars today, Cynthia D. Those are great questions. So Paul D has another question about how to store homemade dressings like balsamic vinaigrette, and how do you prevent separation? Should I pop it back into the blender to regain the right consistency? So first rule is. Um, more than, uh, well, a dressing will last you for five days, but who has a dressing that lasts for five days? Most of us are using dressings as, you know, marinade to saute with other things like that. So my question would be, uh, you make it and then you put it into a mason jar and then you just shake, 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 shake. Um, you can also use a uh, milk frother. Uh, I use a milk frother all the time in my jars. I just take it, turn it on, and this way I don't have to get a blender out. I don't have to get out the ninja thing. I just use that little um, uh, frother, and it does a perfect, perfect job. So you might want to uh, think about using that. So, Paul, I have loved every one of your questions. They have been absolutely wonderful, and... Um, um, when I when we get assignments, I always like to see whose paper I'm grading. So I like to look at their picture. So I know who Paul is because I think he has a couple of assignments that have been recently done by me. So Paul, it's nice to meet you formally. And the last question is from uh, Annette. And it is about nut butters. Which appliance do you use? Well, this can be a discussion for many, but I'm going to say that there's nothing better than a Vitamix. Um, you know, the Vitamix comes in, you can get the 64 ounce container or they have a smaller one that is for uh, grinding and making your own uh, nut butters and flowers and things like that. And the, the propeller, the blade goes in the opposite direction when you're making your own nut butters. Um, so I like to use, I don't add any oil. I just throw those nuts in there uh, you can use raw or roasted, whichever your fancy is. Um, the trick about that is, uh, you know, we're so used to the 
big tub of peanut butter from Costco that um, we think that we have to make a lot of peanut butter, but you want to, especially if it's raw, uh, you want to make it in small batches, maybe put it into an eight ounce jar, keep it in the refrigerator, date it. Um, but I do love my Vitamix for that. Uh, that that's what I think a Vitamix was, uh, was made for. But if you don't have a Vitamix, you know, a food processor will do the same exact thing. It'll just take a little bit longer. And I always would put it on um, high speed for that. So um, that's a, another very, very good question. You know, nowadays um, there's that Ninja bullet uh, that has become very popular with people. Um, some people have a Vitamix, some people don't. Um, but it's what you have on hand. and um, yeah, I, I think making your own nut butters is good. I prefer roasted nuts. That's just me. Uh, and you can roast them in your oven. Um, keep the skin on or off. It's totally up to you. Well, listen, I think we've almost run out of time. We talked about gluten-free pasta. We talked about tofu. We talked about these wonderful dishes for uh, steaming vegetables and such in your microwave. Um, We've got Dr. Monica Agarwal's wonderful, wonderful book. We talked about date syrup. We learned the difference between stock and between broth. And when you're eating vegetables, it makes no difference. So I love getting your assignments. I love reading what you're doing. I love seeing what everyone is doing um, in the real world with what they've learned from Ruby. And um, I think that that's one of the many joys that a program like this brings. And um, again, thanks to Patrick, my very patient uh, producer for today. And I will see you in July. So I hope everyone has um, a wonderful, wonderful day. And thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Bye now. <laughs>